Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. It's one of the great givens of the human condition that we yearn for significance. We look in all sorts of places to find it. They'll often define us, looking to success, money, power, fame, good looks. We may well achieve all those things, and yet there'd be still a restlessness, a God-shaped hole in our heart. Chris Travis was teaching at New York's most dangerous school when he realised the true meaning of significance. It became clear to him that God has a way of turning things upside down in our lives, making the weak strong, the foolish wise, and the insignificant matter. He's written a book about his pretty significant experiences in his own life. It's a curious title, Insignificant, Why You Matter in the Surprising Way God is Changing the World. Chris Travis, welcome to Open House. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the time, Chris. Tell us about the life you were leading before you started teaching in New York, Chris. Yeah, my, my wife and I lived in a different part of the country here in the U.S., and uh, I was working on staff at a church. I was a pastor there, and it was a great church. It was a healthy church. And, uh, you know, that's difficult work. There's ups and downs, but for the most part, it was a great situation. We were surrounded by really loving, caring people who supported us and nurtured us, but began to feel uh, this call to move to New York City to start a new church there. Uh, but knew that uh, we needed to get to the city and become New Yorkers first before we tried to determine what kind of ministry would be appropriate. And when I found out about the opportunity to teach in New York City public schools, my heart just leapt. I just I knew it was what I was supposed to do, and that's what put me on the path that, that landed me at that particular school. What do you say caused your heart to leap so much? There's a huge achievement gap in the public schools in the U.S., and I'm sure this is true in a lot of other parts of the world, but I don't know the stats, but there's a huge achievement gap here between wealthier students and poorer students, between white and Asian students and, and black and Hispanic students, and, uh, and it's an injustice. Even when they've accounted for all the variables, um, income and family of origin and all that sort of thing, there's an injustice in the system. And uh, I don't feel like it's right, and I wanted to do something about it, and statistics have also borne out that the best solution is, is the simplest. The best way to make schools better is to put good teachers in bad schools. And so I, this, that's what this organization's mission was, to just recruit high-quality people to go into some of the worst schools, and they're making huge strides in closing that. I wanted to do something significant is what it boiled down to, and that sounded very significant to me. So why such a dangerous school? Why did you settle for that? Well, that wasn't exactly part of the plan. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to go to uh, a struggling school. I, I'd worked with, with at-risk students before, and I felt, felt very comfortable around uh, students from, from the challenging background. But I didn't intend to end up in a school that, that that year had the highest rate of student injuries per capita in New York City, um, which the fact that that's a metric that they track tells you a little something about what some of these schools are, are like. And, you know, that was out of almost 1,500 schools, the largest public school system the world has ever known. I ended up in the, in the most dangerous one, and I, I didn't intend to do that. It was a bit of a, sh- a shell shock. It's probably worth asking what kind of injuries. It, it was middle school, so it was younger students, although I did have like 17-year-old eighth graders. Um, so they're, you know, who are taller than I am. Um, 
and, and there was some sort of intentional violence, gang activity. We had, you know, a gun scare. There were definitely fistfights that ended up bloody and that sort of thing. But I think the vast majority of it was the school was just completely out of control. And so it would be kids horsing around in the hallway and a student would get pushed down the stairs, not necessarily on purpose, but it was just totally out of control. And there were just lots of those kinds of injuries. But for the most part, I think, you know, the teachers weren't in danger, although there were a couple of incidences where teachers were harmed by, by students. How much of a shock was it for you when you got there to see this? It was an incredible shock. I, I don't think anything could have prepared me. I, I had braced myself for the absolute worst. And usually in any situation, students, even in the roughest schools, will give you a little while to figure you out. And they call that the honeymoon period. And you've got to jump all over it. These students came in looking for a fight. I mean, it was like they owned the school and they knew it, and it was just utter chaos. There were students out of their desks. They were screaming. They were throwing supplies. They were throwing books out the window. You heard the worst kind of language you can possibly imagine screamed in your face. You couldn't get a word in without screaming. Um, Nothing could have prepared me for it, and it was just total madness. It felt like I, I was completely ineffective. Did you ever have second thoughts? Very much so, <laughs> yes. Uh, every, almost every moment. Uh, the first year, I, you know, I, the first day was, uh, I got home and I couldn't believe what I had gone through, and I doubted whether this was the right thing for me to do from then on out, to the point where even when it became very clear later in the year that, that I, I sensed that, that God really wanted me to stay and to stick this thing out, I still tried to get out of this situation. Why were these kids so angry, it appears, and behaving as they did? You know, uh, that's a really good question. Um, Most of the students were coming from really difficult situations. They grew up dealing with things that I really can't imagine because I grew up in a family that was relatively healthy and loved me and took care of me. and And these students, many of them had parents who were incarcerated or who um, were struggling with addictions. I think some of the students had undiagnosed problems. Um, some of them were shouldering responsibilities that I didn't have to shoulder until I was an adult, like finding food or taking care of younger siblings. Many of them had to walk through gang-infested streets to get home where gangs tried to recruit them. And they, the, the gangs go after middle school students. Um, and, and how tempting that must be, a little protection in dangerous streets um, and they don't, the way that they recruit the students is you really don't have to do anything until you get older. And then when you get into your high school age, boys have to, you know, perform violence and girls have to perform sex. But at middle school, it's just big brothers to kind of look out for you. And so they're just dealing with a lot of really difficult stuff. And, uh, and I don't think they had the sense that many people loved them or cared for them. And, um, and that came out a lot in anger. I think they had a lot of good reasons to be angry. And then I think they were angry at me because in, to some degree they were testing me. They were testing, did I actually care enough about them to stick with them? And you clearly did, but how did you make progress in that? The first year I sort of tried to do it in my own ability, and I really didn't. <laughs> I did not make any progress. I. I failed, and that was one of the most difficult things about the experience was 
you know, I can rationalize with the best of them about all the reasons why I didn't do well and the system stinks and kids, you know, they no one read to them when they were young and whatever else you do. But the bottom line is I was a teacher and my students weren't learning, um, and so I, I failed. And um, that was very tough for me. And, you know, the pain from the abuse from the students was very tough, but the real pain that I experienced was this this loss of my sense of significance. I just felt so insignificant. And I, I hadn't realized beforehand how much I based my own sense of significance on being good at what I do, at working hard and, and being effective at what I do. So how was that turned around then? Well, I think it was a situation where I, I sort of needed to be broken down, and, and I think... Uh, God was breaking me down, lovingly breaking me down, so that he could build me back up and removing from me these ways that I was basing my sense of significance on things that are ultimately temporary and can be taken away from you. And um, I had to kind of learn for the first time or, or, or learn and practice things that I thought I knew, simple truths that I had learned in seminary and had taught people in ministry but hadn't worked themselves out into my my own heart, and I had to, to begin to base my significance on who God says that I am. I had to base my significance on the value that He places on us, because I didn't have anything else. So the characteristics that you then started to develop and demonstrate more were what? Well, in, in my private life, my faith became very sort of uh, raw and, and primitive and desperate, and I think childlike. Uh, in the way that Jesus meant when he said, uh, you have to become like children to enter the, the kingdom. Uh, I started to pray desperate prayers. I didn't know how to do this. I was in over my head. I didn't know how to shut down a heckler or curb predatory behavior or cast a vision for how education could possibly matter to uh, a student who's worried about where his or her next meal is going to come from. I didn't know how to do these things. And so I began to pray these really raw, desperate prayers. God, help me, I don't know how to do this. And I started to shift from, God, help me uh, fix my life, make this better for me, I can't do this anymore, to, God, may your will be done. Give me what I need, the wisdom that I need, the strength that I need to accomplish with these students what you want me to accomplish. And so in my private life, what shifted was I began to center my, the activity of my thoughts and my goals, my daily goals, around God's goals and His priority and less around my own comfort or my own agenda. In the classroom, the shift, uh, I became much sterner, uh, not cruel, but uh, very, very strict. I thought I was doing those students a favor by being very friendly when I came in, but it's not what they needed. They, they needed someone who had cared enough about them and would love them enough to be okay with them not, not liking me and to be okay with them... Um, sort of being uncomfortable with me, expecting them to, to do more than they thought that they could. And so I became very, very strict. And uh, when I entered the second year of teaching, it, that made a huge difference. It was like night and day. So how did it change in the classroom and in the way you related and they related to you? Well, when I, when I came into the second uh, year of teaching, I would not give an inch. Having seen the mile that students would take if you give an inch, I, I went in and you know, if you said a curse word in my presence, I treated it like you had just punched an infant in the face. I mean, it was just absolute no margin for any kind of wrongdoing. And I, 
I entered the year with this very strict, here's how it is, this is my classroom, this is how it's going to be. And I think I could say I learned how to be a teacher better. I mean, I learned some things, like uh, some things you can only learn by doing it. I can tell by the angle of a kid's backpack in their lap, whether they were texting under their desk. And I noticed the warning signs um, the, that pr- always preceded violence and were able to sort of get get in there when Jamal was had that glint in his eye. I was able to notice it. But there was something else going on, and I think it was God responding to those months of desperate prayers, because there was a, a power at work that was beyond really what I could explain. My words seemed to do things. I, I just seemed to have an authority that was more than my own my own strength or my own ability to, to get things done. In a way, it's kind of like a supernatural experience, I suppose, and that kind of transformation. You know, honestly, it really felt that way. It felt to me simultaneously like everyday life, and how could this possibly be happening? I, I'll give you one example that is, is in the book. Um, you know, the first year, I could not get students to do anything. I just I couldn't get them to line up, to walk in a line in the hall. I, they just wouldn't do what I wanted them to do, ask them to do, and, and suffered for it. And so there's kind of a fundamental classroom skill with middle schoolers. You, you need to be able to get them to follow simple instructions, like how to stand at a line, how to conduct themselves in the hallway, especially if you ever want to do things like field trips and, and enriching experiences like that. And uh, my second year teaching, I, it's hard for This startled me when this happened. I was in class. My students were quietly working, which that was completely different from the first year. Yes. And um, I heard this commotion in the hallway. And so I quickly stood up, uh, quick enough to startle my students so that all eyes would be on me. And I just said, I'm going to go outside and see what that is. You will keep working. And I just learned, like, when I did that, for some reason they just did what I said. It was just different. So I went down the hallway, and there's two classes full of students um, just playing, milling about, horse playing. So it's about 50 students. And it was one class I knew, so I knew their names, and another class I didn't know, so I didn't even know their names. And um, they were just out there. And this is exactly the sort of situation that can quickly escalate to to violence or bad things happening. And so there's no way I could have make myself heard over this din. So I just, I kind of just projected this energy of indignation and quiet affront. And I knew that it it showed in my eyes. In my mind, I was thinking, Mr. Travis decides how things work in this school, and that's how it is. And um, a couple of the, the girls noticed me, and they said, oh, Mr. Travis is watching, and then a couple other guys noticed, and, and it just sort of spread through this crowd of 50 students. They all fell silent, and they were all looking at me. And then I said to them, you are disrupting education. And then I, I raised my voice to something between, like, a street preacher and a roar. And I said, now, without saying one single word, and then I let my voice fall very, very quietly. I want you to line up against the hallway, girls against the wall, gentlemen beside them. And then these 50 students just quietly did what I said. And in my mind, I thought, you wouldn't have seen this on my face, but in my mind, I, I thought, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> I, 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 it, it was to really, to me, it felt like when Jesus said, if you, if you pray for a mountain, to jump into the sea, it'll uproot itself and jump into the sea. I felt like I had just done that, and this mountain had jumped into the sea. 
And um, then I said, I smiled, which I wasn't able to do much the first year because it was always so chaotic. I smiled and said, thank you so much. I don't know why you've been delayed getting into your classroom. I'd like to ask that you stay here quietly until your teachers arrive, and I'm going to go back in and teach my class. And I went back in, and they stayed there quietly while I went back in and teach my class. When I hear you tell that story, I think you could have embarked on your own kind of power trip through this transformation, but there was clearly a higher power at work here. You know, I think that's a really good point, and I think that's a way that, that anyone in authority can go down sort of a dark path, and that could have happened, especially with children. You know, it's easy to, when you have authority over someone, it's easy to take advantage of that. Yes. And, uh, but yeah, it, it didn't feel like it was coming from me. <laughs> it, it felt like it was, uh, it was coming from something else, and I think it was important for me to keep before me at all times that power or authority is only granted um, to be of service to others. Yes. And I uh, tried, tried to embody a servant leader kind of a mentality where I had to use whatever I had, whatever influence, resources, power I had to make things best for everybody. You left the school after two years. Was that a hard decision to make after such progress? You know, it was. Um, it really was, actually. I, we had this sense that that God had called us to come and start a new church in, in the city and, um, and stuck to that. But I began to really see this, what this could have meant to continue doing it. And, and quite honestly, if life works out for me to go back to teaching again, I, I think I would like to do it at some point. Um, but I'd start to see these visions of teaching my students children and becoming a fixture in the community. And it already, after two years, got to the point where if I if I go within 10 blocks of where that school is, I'm very likely to see a, a student on the street that, that knows me. And, uh, yeah, it was hard. It was an incredibly difficult job. I had no idea how difficult teaching is. Even in the healthiest school, it's intense. So it wasn't hard to take a break from that, from physically uh, from that. But it was emotionally it was very difficult to leave. And yet the experience has delivered the world this book. And the title, as I said before, is curious that you say it's insignificant. What are you saying in that? Why not significance? Because that's what we so often crave for. Well, I think what happened is the two years that I spent teaching in Harlem were sort of a true paradox for me. In one sense, they were the two most insignificant years of my life. And in another, they were the two most significant years of my life. Yes. And they were insignificant in the sense that they didn't have any of the things that the world, all the things that you listed at the beginning of the program, power, achievements, fame, influence. There wasn't any of that. It, I was a middle school math teacher in a little inner city public school tucked away in, in the middle of nowhere at a failing school where most of the students would fail, and I myself most of the time was failing. I mean, in the eyes of the world, in the power structures of the world, it doesn't get much more insignificant than that. And yet, it, they were the two most significant years of my life because I, I got back in touch with what really ultimately matters, and not just for myself, but for every man, woman, and child uh, in the world. And so that's where the title of the book, Insignificant, came from, because I, I discovered that, that just, just as everyone is, uh, significance only really comes from being used by God in this surprising way that he's using the world or changing the world. And I'm sure it's a great foundation for the ministry that you now do. And your place in that community, 
in the coming years. Chris Travis, it's been a great uh, chat. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. And the book is Insignificant, Why You Matter in the Surprising Way God is Changing the World. We'll post the details up on our Open House Community Facebook page. Chris, thanks so much. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.